Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish podcast for independent minds. I think that TC has over-delivered again relative to our next guest. I said that I am eager to do a segment that I would title Oligarchs for Dummies because I have some very basic questions along the lines of exactly who are they, how did they establish their positions, what type of influence can they exert over Vladimir Putin. TC has delivered to me Joel Samuels, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina. Dean Samuels also serves as Professor of Law and as Executive Director of the Rule of Law Collaborative, That's a center that works across the world, including Ukraine, to strengthen the rule of law. Most significantly for our purposes, he's the lead co-author of one of the premier casebooks on international law, has written extensively over the years on matters involving Russia and the former Soviet Union, and has been studying the Soviet Union and its successor state since the late 1980s and has worked extensively in Ukraine over the past five years. This is Joel H. Samuels. Dean, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure to be with you. Your credentials strengthened even by the fact that you, you're you on a short timeline because when you leave me, you will be leading a roundtable discussion with Senator Lindsey Graham on these very subjects. True? That is right. I'll be talking with him on a roundtable at 11 o'clock this morning. Uh, did you see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Yes, sir. Do you remember the scene when one looks at the other? I don't know if it's Newman to Redford or Redford to Newman, and one says, who are these guys? That, sir, is the question that I ask of you with regard to the oligarchs. What's the short answer? The short answer is they are private individuals like you and me who, through a variety of different relationships, became the equivalent of the robber barons. If we think back to early 20th century, 20th century America, a handful of individuals who now are revered for what their foundations do, whether it's the Carnegie's or the Rockefeller's, but whose, many of whose riches came on the backs of personal relationships that gave them access to growing sectors. In our case, it was oil and railroads. In the case of Russia, it uh, has been uh, private industry of various kinds. But with regard to the Rockefellers or the Carnegies, isn't it true that someone in their lineage had to be the capitalist and and, and had to actually create the product, whatever it may have been, whereas instead in a back room it was handed to these individuals? Yeah, there's a nice there's a nice distinction to be made there. And I appreciate that you made that, although in some cases 
some of these individuals did grow certain areas. For example, in the, in the, in the mining sector and the nickel sector, um, they have grown. But the, the, the first thing to say about the oligarchs is when we use the word oligarch today, right now, we're talking about Putin's oligarchs. But there was a whole generation of oligarchs under Boris Yeltsin when the Soviet Union broke up in the 90s who were the first round. And that was a small group. We're talking about nine or ten people. And they were frankly buttressed by the West. I, I remember you have a Penn connection and I have a Princeton connection. So anytime I can take a shot at Harvard, I'll do it. But <laughs> um, a number of the economists at Harvard sort of fell in love with a couple of these guys, particularly a guy named Anatoly Chubais who was part of privatizing Russia. And the thing we loved about them was they were Western educated, they spoke English really well, and so they were accessible to us. But the fact of the matter is they took the Russian economy, they privatized it, and they put it in the hands of nine or 10 people who made huge amounts of money. And that's a different group because when Putin came in, many of them were interested in politics and Putin basically said, get out of the country or you're going to have real repercussions to pay. And one of them was jailed as a result of refusing to listen to, 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 to Putin. The others left and, and set up shop in, in, in London and elsewhere. In other, words, in other words, Dean Samuels, when the Soviet Union fell, a bunch of guys got together and whacked up the pie, and they each took a sector. Is that too simplistic? Not, not at all. That's, they basically, think about it this way. In, in the Soviet days, everything was government-run. And so you had this period, very quick period, we're talking you know, three or four years between 92 and 96, where everything, many of these industries that were public, gas, oil, nickel, uh, telecom, had to be privatized. Well, what was the best way to do that? Well, you could argue they gave out vouchers. By the way, citizens could get actual vouchers, but they all got bought up. And who bought them up? One or two people. And the idea was, well, it'll keep things simple, right? It'll avoid confusion. If, if we have one person who really knows this industry, they'll make sure that the transition happens smoothly. But, and that sometimes did happen, but, but what it did is it concentrated the power and the money in about nine or ten people. And that it, was the precursor. And that it, was the Soviet. It shit. sounds like it happened absent Western involvement or influence, right? Because I imagine if you were going to auction off the Russian gas, oil, or nickel sector, you would have had global interests wanting in and driving up the price, but instead it was a total inside deal. Yeah, the only the only Western influence was again there were some some economists at Harvard and at, and in Sweden who who advised Russia around this and they actually sort of suggested it. So there was, there was Western influence in that sense, but in that early period, you're right, the sort of BPs of the world and others weren't involved. But be clear, they quickly made deals, right? So they quickly became partners um, because they needed the access to the resources. Another naive question. In what form do they hold their ownership, if you know? Is, is there actual title? Is there stock? What, what kind of a paper trail is it that says that Roman Abramovich owns XYZ, or is there none? In most of these cases, there, there are actual um, shares. There are actual paper documents that, um, that they own that show that they own a certain stake in a company. So that does exist. They say that Putin, some say, is arguably the richest person on the planet. First of all, do you have any belief one way or the other? And in what form does he hold such wealth, if you know? I don't. You know, I, I, I'm intrigued by this. So I think that's probably not untrue, um, partially because 
unlike it's a very, that so we talked about those sort of immediate post-Soviet oligarchs, right? Guys like Boris Berezovsky and um, and um, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who's the guy who who was jailed by Putin. This next generation of oligarchs, the Putin oligarchs, are very different. Remember, they weren't there during privatization. They now were there were existing private sector entities, and suddenly they were handed power, or a new bank would be created and suddenly would become the bank of the Russian state, things like that. So they're very personal relationships. So the notion of Putin's wealth is really tied to the oligarchs in a way that you wouldn't have said about Yeltsin. With Yeltsin, it was about political expediency. With Putin, there's, there's an aspect where there's a very good chance that some of these individuals are, have shell companies that essentially hold wealth for Putin. That's at least one of the theories that I've heard that I think has good validity. Dean Samuels, are they formally part of the government? No, they are not. There's a very, very distinct line in Russia between the government officials, of whom there are sort of two categories, the sort of military folks who are the point, folks who I think are in the ascendancy right now, and the economists. I will say Russia has among the best macro economists. They are very thoughtful. They've built a very strong an independent economy in very thoughtful ways. Um, but they are, that group, they're really like, think of them as academic economists. Um, they're very different from the oligarchs who are really private sector individuals who it's very unclear if they have any influence other than uh, the personal relationships they have. But in terms of the decisions around Ukraine, uh, I think it's very opaque who is, if anyone, uh, has Vladimir Putin's ear right now. Many, many years ago, I read a book that made quite an impression on me. It was Hedrick Smith who wrote The Russians. And one of the takeaways was that the juice that was held in the country back in the Cold War was by party officials. Today, it sounds like it's the oligarchs. Does it even carry sway to be a party official in today's Russia? I don't think so. No, I think I think that it is. I think it's the oligarchs. And again, right now, uh, KGB, FSB, um, sort of part of the security apparatus, which is where Putin, of course, came out of. Um, I think those are the people where you hold sway. But, but very much like, I'm glad you brought that up, that, that period, very much like the Soviet era, Putin has, has built a structure that looks very similar, which is to say, uh, I remember back, back when Soviet premiers would die, there would be this, there was a whole field called Kremlinologists, right? Yeah. And the idea yeah. was these are the people who would kind of predict who might take over because we didn't know, because the leader always kept the underlings slightly off their, on, their, on their toes. So, that, so there couldn't be a, a, a coup of any kind. Putin has very much done the same thing. He's destabilized. If you, if you said today, who, who's going to take over if Putin gets hit by a bus or gets hit by a missile? Uh, no, one, I, I, no one could tell you with any certainty. I, I don't believe. I, I wouldn't believe anyone who told me they knew because I, I don't think anyone does know. And that includes the oligarch class. It includes the political class. It includes the, um, the military class. There's kind of constantly shifting, shifting of deck chairs. This is the Smirconish Podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4 
Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. So for the conversation.com, which I'm putting in my social media right now so that people can learn more about Joel Samuels and your view of the world, you said, quote, oligarchs are not restricted to Russia. And this is why we have been hearing the term so often in recent months. Okay, what is the oligarch influence in Ukraine? Well, there, it's, there, are, there are a handful of oligarchs who controlled various industries. And one of the things that's very interesting, you know, President uh, Zelensky is an interesting character, right? He, boy, has he stood up, right? We, we've watched this guy, I think, with awe, the president of Ukraine. Right before the Russian invasion, his popularity rating was 21%, if you can believe it. It's now 90%, as you can, as you can imagine. This is someone who wasn't really a serious leader, and he wasn't taken seriously. He was a guy who was an actor who played a president. I'm sure you've talked about this. An actor sure. who played yeah. a president on a TV show. It's literally like Kevin Spacey from House of Cards becoming president of the United States. He ran against, this to, to answer your question, he ran against an oligarch, a Ukrainian oligarch, who made his fortune not in mining and not in banking and not in, uh, in, uh, in uh, oil and gas in confectionery, in candy, um, and who had a very strong tie uh, to Israel. You see a lot of oligarchs who were, had strong connections to Israel. And, um, and that was the main competitor, Zelensky, in the last presidential election. And he was backed by the Russians. He was a Ukrainian oligarch who made his fortune in candy. So do the Russian oligarchs hold sway over the Ukrainian oligarchs, pardon again for my naivete, are we talking about the same people or do they have distinctly different interests? They have different interests. So I think, I don't think they hold sway. So the same way, if you think of the way you described beautifully the Russians carving up different industries, 
Ukraine would do the same, right? So there would be eight or nine Ukrainian oligarchs who would hold sway in Ukraine in those similar industries, in some similar industries. But there isn't necessarily a strong connection. The, the, the link, of course, is the Soviet era. The link is the sort of notion that you had to privatize industries in a very short order. And there were, of course, there were 16 republics. Think of them as U.S. states. There were 16 republics in the Soviet Union when it broke up in the early 90s. But not all of them had tremendous um, you know, wealth to seize. Russia had by far, by far, by far the most. Uh, Ukraine would have been high up on the next players, but with a big chasm. But you know, there, there are there are probably a couple of oligarchs in Moldova, but Moldova doesn't have a lot of um, resources or or money to sort of divide up. But it's the same notion, different countries. And and by the way, thank you for being so gracious with your time. I I won't overstay my welcome. Just another question or two, based on what you've told us. Now I'm wondering. Th- this almost sounds like a kitchen cabinet of sorts for Putin. Would he necessarily listen to them? This situation in Ukraine seems like a real shit show in the making. So if I'm one of these gas, oil, nickel, fill-in-the-blank types, am I willing to go to Putin and say, Vlad, you know, this is going to jeopardize all of us in the end, or would they not be willing to do that? The last time someone did some version of that, he ended up in jail. So I, I don't think they're willing to do that. I think that what they're going to do, I mean, this, we're, going to see two, we're, we're going to see a bifurcation. We're going to see a group that stays loyal to him and stays there. And we're going to see a group that, you know, let's use the old terminology, that defects in some way and that, that spends its time and brings resources out to the West. The problem is that they're still ill-gotten resources. But I don't, I don't think there's going to be a group who are going to have his ear meaningfully who are going to give him that advice. But how do you define what's ill-gotten? Because by your description, it's all ill-gotten. It, it was not the Carnegies and the Rockefellers rather laying claim through some capitalism, but instead it was that they got their peace when the Soviet Union fell, and then there was a change from Yeltsin and successors to Putin. Well, I think that there are, so what I would say is the, the, certainly that first group was all, in my view, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm taking a pretty strong position. Not everyone would agree with me, but, I, but I've felt this for, for 30 years was ill-gotten. I, my view was, I mean, I was friends with Boris Berezovsky's daughter, my, who, who, by the way, was a former math professor, right, and suddenly was one of the, was probably the, the single richest of the oligarchs in the 90s. Wow. And, uh, and so, I mean, you know, went from, you know, you know, being a math professor and making, you know, small money at, at Moscow State University to running this empire, brilliant guy. But, um, you know, they, they did grow things. I don't want to make it seem like they didn't. They, they have been important in terms of leading industry, many of them have been, not all, but many really have grown these entities, even if their initial ownership claim might be a little bit um, problematic. And in some cases, they actually are, are self-made. But most of them, it's a fair statement you've made, most of them, um, I think, really have um, uh, gotten, gotten their positions because of relationships. Final question for Joel Samuels, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina. What is it that you will tell Lindsey Graham in 40 minutes that I have not given you the opportunity to say? Well, I'll say this. Our topic is about war crimes. As you know, he has introduced legislation uh, calling on a war crimes investigation. So we'll be talking about that issue. Um, and I'd be happy, by the way, to come back and talk to you about this. Because the very what, one of the challenges for me as a true internationalist, and like you, very much a centrist seeking his space in the current world, is I have long defended the international system. That's actually my field of expertise: is international law and the United Nations, and so on. 
And I think that recent events have demonstrated the complete inefficacy of the United Nations and the international system. The recent case filed in the International Court of Justice, to me, is just noise, because the only way you can enforce an International Court of Justice opinion is through the Security Council of the United Nations, which Russia sits on and has veto rights on. So it's really shown that this international system was set up in the wake of World War II to avoid wars, particularly among superpowers, uh, has is completely uh, worthless. Right. It's Dean Wormer and, you know, double secret probation. There's just no nothing to it. You got it. There's nothing to it. Will you say and, will you yeah, say it that way to Lindsay? And credit I me. I will. I will for sure. <laughs> he <laughs> hey, will appreciate the reference. I hope. Dean Samuels. Excellent job. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. And good luck with your event today. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice to meet you virtually. Joel Samuels is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, serves as a professor of law and as executive director of the Rule of Law Collaborative. Nicely done, TC. You earned your keep. He All was, right. He was really, One more day. Uh, <laughs> I'm totally taken with uh, these oligarchs and how they got where. And I understand, like, it's a second generation of oligarch. And I, I would have kept going, but I thought that I was going to overstay my welcome with him. Do any of them have business expertise? It sounds like some of them do. But I, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's like uh, Putin sitting around and saying, OK, let's see now for the A.I. industry. I really need some. But I know I'll get Elon Musk. And I'll give him a big piece of the puzzle. Or uh, let's see, for uh, technology, Tim Cook. I'm going to give Tim Cook because I think he could really grow the sector. I think instead it's Putin probably saying, who can I control and who is going to exhibit some fealty to me going forward? This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. 
And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asked them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. So what is the United States commitment to Ukraine? What is the Budapest memorandum? The subject came up here for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I think it was a caller who raised it. I then stammered my way through a response in trying to address the Budapest Memorandum. Soon thereafter, soon thereafter received an email from John Williams, who is in the Baker orbit, meaning Secretary and Mrs. James Baker. Mrs. happened to be listening to our conversation that day. John Williams sent me a very diplomatic missive, but I could tell uh, that he thought there were some things that I needed to know about the so-called Budapest Memorandum. And among those that he recommended I speak with, Peter Baker of The New York Times, Peter Baker as in the author of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, Peter Baker, no relation to the aforementioned former secretary, is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, responsible for reporting on President Biden, and both uh, he and his wife having served uh, as Moscow bureau chiefs for the post previously joining me now. Hey, Peter, thank you. Sorry for the botched introduction. I'm really excited to have you. No, 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 not at all. I'm happy to be with you. So the Budapest Memorandum, can we do it for dummies? I'll play dummy in chief. What exactly is it? What transpired? Right. Well, exactly. It's a good it's a good question. And it matters now from 1994. Sounds like sound like uh, the the movie, right? The Grand Budapest Hotel. The Budapest Memorandum was was an agreement between the United States, the uh, United Kingdom, Russia, and Ukraine, in which Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons in exchange for guarantees of its sovereignty. And the, the memorandum very specifically says that all of the signees, meaning Russia, will respect Ukraine as an independent nation and not use force to rewrite its boundaries. That's exactly what Russia committed to in 1994. And this is important because when the Soviet Union broke up, uh, there were uh, there were four new nations that had nuclear weapons, uh, not just Russia itself, but Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan. And the three others agreed to send their nuclear weapons back to Russia. So it would only be in the control of one country. We wouldn't have a proliferation of countries with nukes. But in exchange, Ukraine said, you got to uh, agree to our independence and not try to change that. And Russia agreed to that. And of course, today we see what's happened. So has Russia violated the Budapest Memorandum? Has the United States violated it? Some combination thereof. Well, certainly Russia, obviously. Has, I mean, the, the wording is very clear about respecting UK's stra- stra- sorry, sovereignty and not using force to change its borders. That's exactly what Russia, of course, has done. It's been doing that actually since 2014. So it's, it's violated it now for eight years, but this is in a more uh, extraordinary scale at this point. The United States committed to, 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 to respecting and supporting Ukraine's sovereignty. You could argue that what we're doing now in terms of backing them in their defensive war against this Russian invasion is in keeping with our commitment to that. Ukrainians would say we should do more. Uh, but uh, we were guarantors, in effect, of Ukraine's sovereignty as part of that agreement. So does President Zelensky there have, therefore have basis to say, hey, United States, you've violated the commitment that you made in the Budapest Memorandum? 
Well, I don't think, I don't think the, the question of us violating so much as like, are we doing enough to live up to it, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, the violation, we're not violating their sovereignty. We're not violating, we're not using force against Ukraine. Those would be violations of the memorandum. You know, there's nothing in the memorandum that says we come to their aid militarily. It's not a NATO treaty. It's not like the Article 5 commitment that we made to our NATO allies. But it does, you know, it does make us a guarantor of Ukraine's sovereignty. And that's one of the things that uh, right now the United States and Western Europe uh, is trying to are trying to, uh, uh, you know, bolster. Peter, you wrote the book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. What was his specific role in bringing about the agreement? Right. Well, so it, this is born out of his time as Secretary of State when the Berlin Wall falls and the Soviet Union collapses and the Warsaw Pact uh, disappears. And he begins this process of, of discussing what are we going to do about the sort of, you know, stranded nuclear forces in these newly created Soviet states. So he's the beginning of this negotiation that ultimately leads to the Budapest Memorandum, which takes place uh, a year and a half or so after he leaves office. Uh, and so he, he, he saw early on, as did other U.S. policymakers, that it made no sense to have more countries with nuclear weapons if we could, if we could do something about it. I mentioned at the outset, I tried to mention at the outset that in between stints at the White House, you and your wife spent four years as Moscow bureau chiefs for the Washington Post. Am I right? Chronicling the rise of Vladimir Putin, the rollback of Russian democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bring the 30,000 foot view to what is going on today with regard to Putin. More specifically, are you surprised by any changes that you've seen in his actions recently as compared to the time period that you've been paying attention? Well, if you go back to when we were there, we were there for Putin's first four years in office. Right. And in, in many ways, you can see in that period the foreshadowing of what we're seeing today, right? You saw a leader who was aggrieved about the collapse of the Soviet Union, mad at the West, believed that they had been mistreated by the West, believed he needed to reconsolidate power. Now, when we were there, that meant taking over independent television. That meant uh, using enormous, brutal force against Chechnya, which is a small Muslim republic in the Russian uh, south that wanted to pull away from Moscow. He, he absolutely leveled Grozny. I was in Grozny, which is the Chechen capital. The place was like Dresden in World War II. He's willing to use ex- exceptional force against civilians in order to get a political goal. So we saw, I think, the origins of some of what we're seeing today back then. But today it's so much more, right? Today it's on a grander, bigger, more extraordinary level. He had never tried something as big as, as Ukraine. He had always sort of chipped away at small pieces of a territory like places like Abkhazia and Crimea, which most Americans have never heard of, probably don't care about. Now suddenly he, 22 years in, has has uh, you know uh, uh, you know tried to fulfill this grander ambition of being like a czar, rebuilding the Russian Empire and going for an entire giant country the size of Texas or France. In trying to bring these subjects full circle to go back to the Baker era, did we spend enough time then thinking about the implications of accepting into NATO these former satellite states? In other words, were we too eager to bring them into the realm without thinking about how pissed off Putin would be in the long term? Yeah, I mean, of course, this happened before Putin took office, right. most of the, or at least the beginning of NATO expansion. But you're right. I mean, there's no question that NATO expansion aggravated uh, Russia even back in the 90s. Uh, I, you know, and there's no question there's a debate today as to whether that was wise. Right? On the one hand, you'd hear, hear people saying that was unnecessarily provocative. 
and we just push Russia away. The other side would say, look what's happening now. Uh, if those countries hadn't joined NATO, they would be vulnerable the way Ukraine is. The only thing that's protecting Poland and the, and the, and the, the Baltic states is the fact that they're members of NATO. So you could, you, could, you could play it out either way. But one thing I think is important to remember, Michael, is it's a manufactured reason right now. There was nothing happening about NATO in years that would suddenly make Russia wake up and say, hey, we need to invade. Because Ukraine wasn't about to join NATO. That, is, that was long since over. As long as there was, a fact, a war in the East, which Russia created, that meant it wasn't even eligible, really, for NATO. So this was a manufactured excuse by Putin to justify an invasion. Otherwise, they had no justification. Remember, in 2002, in fact, Vladimir Putin told our colleagues at the Wall Street Journal that he didn't that, that, that other countries, including the Baltic Republics, which had been part of the Soviet Union, had every right to join NATO if they chose to. So he believed back then that countries had the right to join NATO. Only in the last, you know, recent years is he trying to say no, they don't. Let me ask you a question in your capacity as chief White House correspondent responsible for reporting on the president. The White House, the administration, seems to be involved in this very delicate dance of discerning. What is an act of provocation? And I'm having a hard time understanding how sanctions are not provocation. Uh, financial relief specifically for weapons is not provocation. Committing to weapons themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow the MiG-29s or providing some type of air defense system is a bridge too far. What can you say about that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. It's important to remember that the sanctions and the financial uh, measures that have been taken by the West in Moscow do look like an act of war because, in fact, it has had an extraordinary impact so far already on Russian and their economy. So, in fact, Putin does consider that to be war of a sort. Now, what Biden is always trying to do is avoid the shooting kind of war where we get into an escalation that could lead, obviously, potentially even to World War III, right? Because if you start shooting with Russians and Russians start shooting back, it, it, it's not that hard to imagine a scenario that eventually leads to nuclear weapons. So that's, I think, the line that, that Biden is trying to str straddle here. He's trying to figure out what, what is it that we can do that doesn't lead to that kind of escalation? How far can we go that doesn't trigger that kind of open uh, shooting war between Russian and American soldiers? Is it possible that through some form of back-channel communication, Putin has served notice that that would be a line that would be crossed if the MiGs were to be delivered? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, that, that's certainly possible. Um, I think that uh, a, the big thing is complicated on a variety of levels. Um, first of all, how do you deliver them? You know, do you put, you don't obviously put NATO pilots in those planes and fly them into Ukrainian airspace where they can be literally again shot at by by Russian forces and then lead to an escalatory situation. There's also the question of you know, I mean, is, are the planes the most important thing that they could use right now versus other things like anti-air uh, capacity and, and, and the anti-tank weapons and all that? But you're right. I, I think it's, it's an interesting to, uh, line that they've drawn to say that this is something that goes too far at this point. And a lot of people say, no, it's, 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 it's in keeping with other things we should do, therefore why? Rule that out. And Peter, one other subject. Thanks for being so gracious with your time. While I've been on air today, uh, it has been reported that President Zelensky will deliver a virtual joint address to Congress Wednesday morning. This, according to both Speaker Pelosi and uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. I'm wondering if there's a growing divide between Congress and the White House. I'm mindful of the fact that you had 40. They were all Republicans in the Senate who said they wanted the delivery of, of more uh 
weaponry as well as air support. You also had 15 members of the House bipartisan at the end of the week send a letter to the White House. Do you see a growing rift there? Well, there's no question that Congress is being more assertive in this foreign policy crisis than it often is. And it's kind of pushing and nudging uh, Biden forward in a bipartisan way, as you say, obviously, Republicans being a little more willing to be critical, but Democrats uh, pushing him as well. And they're, and, and, and it's, it's been interesting to watch, right? And I think that one of the things that um, you could argue that that says that they don't think the president is being assertive enough, he also argued that, that Biden is holding back a little bit and allowing himself to be pushed a little bit so that there is kind of a consensus, right? So that they're the ones already taking ownership of some of these steps before he actually takes them. So they can't complain if he cuts off Russian oil, for instance, which he did last week, because they're the ones who said he should do it. Um, he's trying to keep a consensus in which everybody more or less is on board with the same strategy, not just his, uh, his own administration, not just the Republicans and Democrats here, but the Europeans uh, as well. And that's a tricky you know, balance to, to, to strike right now. I wonder to whom Zelensky will be speaking. In other words, will the intended audience be the Congress, the American people, the White House, or some combination thereof? Yeah, I think it's D, all of the above. Yeah. I mean, I think that he is speaking to the world right now. And, it, and it's, there's an obvious historical parallel to Churchill coming to, to speak, you know, before we get into World War II to try to get America activated and energized. Now, Again, you know, I don't think Biden is going to take us into the war. He made it very clear he doesn't want us to do that directly. And that there's a consequence to that that is, is, is hor- too horrible to contemplate. But no, there is no question that Zelensky has become a bipartisan hero here in the United States, a, a symbol of, of, of courage and, and, and resistance, and, and he will get a warm welcome. Peter Baker, you're a busy guy, and I'm very appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks. Have a great day. Among other of his achievements, author of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asked them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high.